0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. How we understand and interpret our parents, our upbringing, How we define who we are or how we deal with the grief and the loss that is inevitable are the tent poles of many memoirs. Alexandra Fuller, in her memoirs and beginning with the award-winning book, Let's Go to the Dogs, takes these foundations and by adding the most luscious of language, her sharp wit and the unvarnished truth, we are given heartbreakingly beautiful books. Her newest memoir, Travel Light, Move Fast, is about her father, his passing, and how by absorbing the lessons of his irreverent, loving, chaotic life, she finds the ability to deal not only with his loss, but grief in general. And we get another sublime memoir. Alexandra Fuller, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. Alexandra, you open your book with your father, Tim Fuller, dying in a hospital in Budapest, far from the lands of Africa he loved. And before we come to the end of his exuberant life, let's talk about uh, the beginning, in 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 one of the passages in the book, I, it absolutely cracked me up to read your description of a conversation he had with his nanny in England when he was seven. Uh, would you share that with us? Yeah. So there was, I mean, very early on, I think he realized
1: that England w- wasn't a place where he could get eaten. He really had this idea he was destined for wilder places. So he had announced to his nanny that he was going to go to Africa in a few years after his duties of childhood were done um, and arrive at either Cape Town or Mombasa. He didn't know where. And the story he always told, you know, the way that you always tell your sort of origin of relationship story was that he went to Kenya to see a giraffe and met my mother. (laughs)
0: And so what was going on in his life in England that at such a young age he wanted to escape? He came from a
1: sort of long line I think of really um broken sort of ungrieved uh you know people that had married um, either for position or wealth and um but but not love and so there was this sort of loveless desperately trying to stay in the elite class, um, you know, that he was sort of of that ilk. And his father had been in the Navy, so never home. And his mother was a raging alcoholic from the age of about 16. Um, and, I mean, to such an extent, she couldn't hold the children that she had. So my father had a full-time nanny. So there was this, he was sort of materially quite um, very privileged you know he went to all the best schools he had skiing holidays but there was an
0: absolute dearth of love and and when he left england to go to africa how how did his family take that i mean it wasn't that i mean there were a number of brits that were going to different parts of as would have been called the empire including Rhodesia in Africa, where your father went. But what was his family's response to that? Well, I mean, I think there was this, you know, way that it's so unspoken, but, you know, the oldest
1: father inherits or the oldest son inherits the, you know, business or the estate and the middle son goes into the cloth and the third son, you know, is the miscreant that gets sent off to the colonies. And sort of there was was hierarchy in the colonies and it was snobbier to be an India than it was to be in Kenya, and it was snobbier to be in Kenya. Yeah,
0: there was like a whole a whole hierarchy.
1: And he's just not playing the game. He won't marry... Who he should. Right. And he goes off and marries a colonial, which everyone in his family considered a huge step down. The irony being that everyone in my mother's family, the colonial you know, side of the sketch, thought that marrying my father was a huge step down. So they... I mean they never really it was oil and water in that way their families were and I think my father got a lot more absorbed into my mother's world as a result since his family you know didn't come to the wedding never visited us in Zimbabwe I mean we I knew very little of them really
0: and your your mother's family went to Kenya in the 1800s
1: yeah they um went out as coffee farmers mm-hmm And, you know, we're very religious. They built a church and it burned down, I think, the coffee plantation sort of. I mean, the whole thing. There's been sort of five generations of mediocrity, I would say. Mm.
0: But yet, you know, you use that term mediocrity. So when we talk about mediocrity, we could think about mediocrity in a couple of different ways. One would be wealth. One would be accomplishment one would be intelligence Mm -hmm. and one might be purpose. Yet I've been left reading both your latest memoir and your previous memoirs of thinking of your parents as anything but mediocre. Right, that's true.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And so out of this mediocrity that they both maybe operated from, what contributed to there being, you know, we. What I'd like to do is get to a couple of examples because to me, reading it, you know, on the one hand they seem utterly nutty um, and totally dysfunctional. On the other hand, there's a resilience and a love and an optimism uh, about about them. What 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 drove that? Well,
1: I think my mother was born. Um, to see her, the sort of end of her adolescence coincide with the end of colonialism and her neck of the woods. And it really was Uganda was Kenya, as she would have called it. She's very sort of shut down. (laughs) She cannot talk about um, sort of colonial history. She can't discuss racism very robustly. I mean, my books have really been a difficult thing for her because for me, it's this constant itch. I can't stop bringing it up how you can, you know, operate with that that much neurosis. And, I mean, to begin with, I just thought, well, they drank their way through it. But I mean, r- really to structure an entire country to make millions of people invisible and to make their pain untouchable to you, there's a certain amount of damage that you have to come, you, you have to be a bit numb. The thing that sort of struck me about it was that she is very white settler the same way that the white settlers who came out west in the U.S. and you had to have, I mean it, it, you, it bode you well to survive to be really utterly heartless because what you were watching was the ruthless decimation of a culture and subjugation and so yes and to make room for you and so what you're taught kind of concurrently with that is this stiff upper lip and what that what that Means I think is that you can't feel your own feelings because the beginning beginning with feeling your own feelings, the next horrific step for people who are trying to subjugate an entire country is that you might begin to believe that other people have feelings. So my father walked into this, on the one hand, very passionate, very beautiful, very vibrant, very fragile, very explosive woman, out of his cold, damp, chilly England, and I think um, they. They, I mean, they just made perfect sense to each other, um, and they. I mean, the thing that I really struck me about them, really more than most people, is they an entire culture, an entire weather system, built up around them and around their relationship.
0: So let's 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 break that down into two things because one of the uh, passages. Let me see if I could get it in front of me where you talk about their marriage. She looked around the room feebly uncertain, this is your mother, as if someone else had been camping there for two weeks uh, to leave hungry with your dad's ashes. Dad usually does the packing, she said, and suddenly I saw their marriage, not as I had seen it until now, a rollicking grand misadventure set in East and Southern Africa, romance, racism, and tragedy. But as they must have felt it, a comforting habit worn into grooves increases over the decades. In all the uncertainty they they had courted, through all their little victories and their grand losses, they'd been each other's constant. Mm. So as you began to understand that about their relationship— And as you entered your own relationships, how did what their marriage become or what it was impact your own relationships?
1: I think I'm a lot more cautious not to get as codependent as they were. I mean, there was this way in which they—it was such a— you, it, it's very difficult to talk about your parents without slipping into al speak, I think. But I mean, I think the thing that I initially did was inadvertently, you know, what all children do replicate or you know, are in danger of is replicate the relationship. They had it looked very different, but it mm. had a very similar emotional sort of boiling point, which was really the way in which something always needed to be bigger than us, which means you exist in relationship dramatically. And I think that's what really, I mean, it kept my parents going. There's this way in which I really celebrated it, but they didn't know one another terribly well because they bonded around their skill at handling, you know, drama and tragedy and um, and sort of adversity um, as if they were constantly on belay on a mountain, you know. And it, it i I think that's a very addictive state to be in. I think it's a very addictive relationship style.
0: <laughs> and do you think that made them seek out danger? I mean... Of course, because I think that's the thing, right? You you
1: have... But both. I mean, I think the two fed into each other. It's, it, was, it was very difficult for them. I mean, part of it was the work that they needed to do to grieve. Um, you know, they mm. lost three children, and the, I mean, the 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 labor of that grief is extensive, um Mm. i can't even imagine no I, i i cannot imagine um but they ran from it and i know they did because they took us with them i mean they just traveled and traveled and traveled every we moved you know 20 times in 18 years or something um in my childhood the more than 30 times in the 30 years of their marriage until they finally settled down on this farm on the banks of the Zambezi. so they were very restless and some of that had to do With the choices they made, they decided they wanted to stay in white ruled Africa. That was a very unstable idea. A tiny white minority, you know, with its Mm. death grip on power, and then you know, to take children out to the front line. None of my siblings died as a direct result of the war, but I'm sure it, you know, drained off an awful lot of my parents' attention to be on the front line. And you know, I recently I was having a conversation with mom, and she's watching some television program about. Some British sort of colonials at the end of Aden, as it was then, um, who who are sort of living out the end of empire there. And their children have forever been kidnapped and murdered. And my mother said, Who would do that? Who would take their children to the front line of a civil war? Which made me realize, you know, even after all these memoirs and
0: all our complaints about them, we all have our blind spots that stay. <laughs> and and let's, let, let's set the landscape a, a bit about this period of time and your age so you moved to what was then Rhodesia in 1972 you're i believe 3 years old yeah mm-hmm. um it, the Rhodesia was a colony of no it was it was a pariah
1: nation at that point it had declared unilateral made a unilateral declaration of independence against Britain in 1964 so it was a very it, it was a significant place to move to in 1972. It was heading for war. It had already had unrest for a good, you know, eight years because at UDI, obviously, there was a response from the majority that this was going to be unacceptable. So by the time we got there, that response already had traction. Um, so for my parents to do that, and it is something, you know, I've it's taken me a long time to realize and say But it was a phenomenally abusive thing to take your Mm. children into a situation that is by structure racist, white supremacist, but there's no need to say it. It was so cunningly done. The structure existed so uh, organically to the laws, which had been made by a handful of white men, to the democracy, which had been declared by a handful of white men, to, you know, who should have votes, which had been declared by a handful of white men. So it was so ingrained in the, you know, but was decided by white men who should get passports, who should have visas, who should be citizens. Um, and so it was very easy for white people, but it was nearly impossible for a black person in their own country.
0: Alexandra, do you think they were attracted to go to Rhodesia than by smelling the trouble that was about to happen or by the racism? It was. Mm-hmm. They didn't see the trouble. That's the crazy thing. I think when you're that
1: sort of... I mean, that is something I explore constantly in my books. Like, how do mm-hmm. you become racist? How are you that checked out? Because it is something I mean, very necessary for us to explore in the States, too. How is it that you can do this thing that is so... Blatantly, what it is (laughs) that everybody else is saying that's just racist, and you yourself aren't feeling it. I mean, that level of unconsciousness, that level of uh, truly neurotic numbness I mean, just it's and I, I mean, I think what's so hard is I come out of that. What's rare is that I come out of that upbringing so um, articulate about it and so loving of the people who were in it, so hateful of their belief system. But I don't think we have very many clear portraits of these people who are sort of casually racist. And I think that in a, a weird sort of way, Rhodesia offers uh, like a petri dish on, on, you know, the global north and racism that exists globally. You know, we we all know, we don't really turn a hair if we hear of a white family in the U.S. moving to a white suburb that's unspoken it's going to stay that way you know for however mm. long right but we but i but we can remark that parents would move to a white country <laughs> do you see what i mean there's those parallels and there are ways in which that's incredibly there are more ways that that is damaging to the children than it is good for them
0: and if you had a conversation or have you had a conversation and your mother has read these books would she consider herself a racist um you know she's a, I, I don't know if this comes across
1: in the in the books as much as it does in real life but she's a she's um she is a very sort of transactional um person she will agree with who, who for the most part she will agree with whoever's sitting across the table with her until she decides to get into a disagreement with Mm -hmm. you know and 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 so i mean sometimes she's quite sort of able to accept that we were racist but she that uh, for me and my daughter and my daughters actually and and um we talk about it incessantly we find it it's it's we wake up talking about this stuff um sort of trying to dig it through social justice climate change how it's all connected i mean it's just endless we we are fascinated at what it takes to deconstruct it, but I don't think my mother... Yeah, she can get to the naming it. First of all, that's naming the blindingly obvious, um, and it's not going much further than that.
0: And so there were five of you that your parents, your mom gave birth to, three of whom died, and then you have a sister, Vanessa. And would... Does Vanessa hold? So she grew up in the same environment. So you, you're in Rhodesia, which uh, shortly thereafter your arrival embarks on a very long war, of which your family is living under those conditions for an extended period of time,
1: actively participating, including the children. I mean, we were given Uzi submachine
0: guns at six, nine. You were given, say that again? Uzi submachine guns. (laughs) That you were trained to use?
1: I I mean, I think this is the thing that I get so... I think, I I mean, I I begin to feel slightly insane because I feel like I had the childhood (laughs) that people in this country think they want their children to have. But you don't want to take away a six-year-old's innocence with that much fear and hatred. Because I, speaking from experience, the child has no ability to um, you know, to rebound from that. And the, and the parents having taught that feel no, and the structure having taught that, feels no duty to unteach it. The war ends, that's it. You're supposed to walk away from all that fear, all that training, all that horror, as if it didn't happen. I mean the truth is that I think I've written about it so much to try and unlearn it to try and get to the bottom of it to try and understand what it was because it was it wasn't it wasn't passive I mean passive I think is white privilege but we were more than that we were <laughs> active militant my father was called up I mean he was conscripted he fought for 6 months of every year by the time the war ended but my mother volunteered um and we we all ended up getting roped into it, whether you volunteered or were conscripted or not. If you were living that close to the front line, I,
0: I I need to go back to this because it sounds so shocking to me, you know. And I'm relating it a little bit to what we read and have learned about child soldiers in Uganda. So it's it's different than that. But yeah. When they were teaching you how to use an Uzi, mm-hmm. what were they, how were they guiding you about its use or purpose? They put a
1: target of a black man in front of us and showed us where you shoot someone to kill them and where you shoot someone to maim them. So, you know, unlike the child soldiers, the Sirleon and the stories that, you know, we've read that have come out of there, uh, it's a much more protected childhood but it is still mm-hmm. it's the it's the flip side of the coin. It's still a tremendous abuse. And I don't think it gets talked enough about you're, you're defending yourself. It's not official. You're not armed. The government isn't handing you out guns. There's no, yeah. you know, yeah. you're not sleeping in the bush at night. You you for I me, mean, I had I had so much more protection than um, the black children my age um, and my you know, black colleagues. And that really, I mean, I'm so grateful that I happened to go to a boarding school, which was all white until independence, and then it was integrated. And integration taught me so much about the war I had just seen, because there I was in school dormitories, um, crammed now, because we were putting in double the number of kids with kids who were much older than I was, because the schools for black children had been shut down for most of my childhood. And they were able to tell me Okay, so this is what we saw. And so all Mm. the propaganda and lies and so on, you know, that got erased. It would be as if someone who really believed—I mean, you just—yeah. That was an an absolutely unofficial truth and reconciliation experiment, but it worked for me. It worked for me. It made me realize, oh, don't believe all your own thoughts. Certainly don't believe everything you're told.
0: And— and do you think that was the beginning of your learning to be an observer to your own life and question? No, I think that happened
1: uh, very early on as a result of feeling unsafe. I became hypervigilant. So every, I, you know, stored moments. You, from very little of you growing up in a civil war, walk into a room and you know where the windows are and you look where the passageway is and you check where you know you don't want the window coming in on you it's just how you operate right and but you do it doing it from so young I don't think you realize how watchful you're becoming so I think that that Mm. on top of probably already being born with a writer's voyeuristic streak you know added to it and then a sense that yeah I mean we had a thousand near-death experiences probably by the time we were thousands in exaggeration, a lot. I mean, every single day, all your nerves were on fire wondering, is this the day? Is this the day?
0: Well, you know, one of the things that this is making me think of, I went um, to a conference on early childhood brain development, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a woman from Harvard that was talking about children who grow up in poverty or violence have such high levels of cortisol in their brain, meaning they are constantly in a state of fight or flight, constantly, and that the inability to lower those cortisol levels actually rewires your brain Mm -hmm. in terms of your inability to develop an interior life, an imagination. Wow, how extraordinary. And and as I'm listening to you, it makes me think about that vis-a-vis, how, you, you know, what was happening to your mother, what was happening to you. And Vanessa... Right. I, I I think that
1: there's... I've done so... I mean, you know, this is... I think about this incessantly. I think about the long wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all those children... Who are going to be coming out into an adulthood that, that I've had? So, you know, of course, I had a diagnosis of PTSD, but also borderline personality disorder, which is very similar. It's a lot more shaming. People weren't treated, but it has mm-hmm. this very similar thing. It's this hypervigilant, super organized, <laughs> you know, you're very fragile. Um, and so for me, the things that became, you know, once I had children of my own, and this just, you know, gift and I was fortunate I loved being a mother my mother hated being a mother and I think for me loving being a mother was one of the most enormous gifts because it was so healing to Mm. give so much love and to be so rewarded and I I, you know I certainly didn't do it perfectly I I had not been raised with much nurturing but I did look at the indigenous communities around me who mostly raised me and mimicked as much of that as I could. So I held my children for two years. I nursed them on demand. And those turned out to be very, you know, basic that's sort of in all the the yuppie, you know, raise your kids books has turned out exactly what I was doing out of pure instinct. But
0: Well what you know, one of the one of the um phrases I saw you use in an interview, uh which I loved, and it was that since you were raised by indigenous people in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, that one of your goals was to give music to their voice.
1: Mm. I know, but I look back at that now and feel a bit chilled by the arrogance of that. The
0: voices were always there. We just weren't listening. Right. But but somehow it sounds like, Alexandria. you were absorbing yes. that the antidote to what you were experiencing was their behavior and care. I know, and you know, I've I've had friends in the Black Lives
1: Black Lives Matter movement who've said, "Black love, just one drop of it's worth, you know, a gallon of white love." And you're the beneficiary. It's it's sitting right, and I've 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 been sitting there and thinking, right? It's so free. It's the the you know the love that I experienced in my own household was contractual and conditional and uh, sporadic. But and I'm not saying the perfect indigenous community love because the we were a very broken society. It was very violent. There was a lot yeah. going on that I mean we were a very broken nation. Just the way indigenous communities here reflect. You know, white settler violence with what goes on, on on the reservations. So, I mean, I think the point that I'm getting to is that as an adult, as I, as as being as being a, a parent, being a mother myself, and not wanting to do to my kids what was done to me, whether through mental illness or addiction, um, I really had to get to the base of what those were, which were PTSD and this, you know, the brain development, the the, the sense of flight or flight never left me and it was perfect i I went on and got a job as a as a reporter for national geographic and went and put myself in places where those (laughs) skills are really useful but it wasn't but when the switch finally broke which was after my dad died um and i had flashbacks and it was evident that it was time for me to be sober from alcohol all of those things um i mean my world came crashing to a stop, mm-hmm. to to for me to get mentally well, because I w- w- I think I had my father I have my father's drive and determination, his fire. I have my mother's you know, intelligence, her wit, her sort of storytelling ability. I've got this you know magnificent <laughs> experience. I've got a big long experience behind me, but none of that matters if your mind has become so mm-hmm. unstable. It turned out that meditation. Um, And, uh, and those sorts of modalities, it sounds like you would be familiar with, you know, EMDR that Mm -hmm. helped that, but years of it, um, you know, meditation is my medication because there is really nothing else for the conditions that, you know, you end up with if you're raised, um, in that much violence and hostility, even though it is also experienced as privilege.
0: Yeah. You know, there are so many topics that we're running out of time and we didn't get to talk about uh, the way you were raised or or living under war or the, the wildness and humor and craziness of your dad. So everybody's going to have to read this book <laughs> to get the full. I, I wouldn't want everyone um, listening to miss it. I think the conversation we're having is important in a different way. And one of the things I'm struck by is this. um, My parents are Holocaust survivors. I become very fascinated by the corrosiveness of generational trauma. Yes. And reading your book, the thing that I was most struck by was two things. One, you broke a cycle. (laughs) I'm breaking it. You know, broke breaking a cycle, which is one of the most difficult uh, journeys that I think uh, those who are at the short end of that kind of corrosive uh, set of conditions that are generations or uh, you know, just two generations long, is a heavy lift. And and the other is, I'm going to read the last uh, couple of sentences, and one is a quote from your dad that you repeat. But then there's a last sentence that I'd love you to speak to because it reflects on a kind of optimism that feels a bit surprising hmm. when I read what life had been and and the losses that you experienced even further after the horrible loss of your dad and the end is that your last paragraph is I no longer pretend to know what the end may look like and I've lost the arrogance to take a guess nor do I have the energy to keep entertaining myself with possibilities and impossibilities of what the end is but i know the end is not now or if, or if it is an end all ends and therefore i can only assume it's also a beginning all beginnings yeah what 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 feeds that last line for you alexandra i think it's the
1: well, so the tragedy that you're referencing is that after my dad died, my son died suddenly 3 years after less than 3 years after my father died and and sort of put the death of my father and my my grieving um into perspective. I was about 3 chapters into writing this book when my son died. And so, of course that fed into the way that I wrote the rest of the book, but as I was writing it, I was surviving a grief so much worse than just the grief of my father, mm. which was expected. When you lose a parent, lo- you lose your past, um, but lose when you lose your son, you lose your future. And I was stuck with the painful present. And, you know, I think anyone who's sort of gone to a meditation group, and I've done a lot of it in order to, you know, really be able to kind of come to terms with i mean really just to be on the planet um but you know that whole thing of sort of being here now being here, be present be present that they Mm. keep on haranguing you about it's much easier to do when your son hasn't died it's much easier to do you know when things are easy but it is much more essential to do when your son's just died and it turns out it's a lot Everything else falls away. And there is this, um, I think, requirement. I told my children I would love them into infinity. And it's typical of me that I would have a child that would test that. Hmm. But in finding him, which I was going to do or die trying, of course, I found infinity. That's where he went. And so it wasn't an end. It was, you know, all beginnings. But that is, mm. as anyone who knows, whoever sort of reaches that place, um, it's just, it's such a fleeting thing. You touch it, then it's gone. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it is interesting what you said because the only literature I could read after my son died was um, Man's Search for Meaning. The Victor Frankl book. I I read that and read it and read it and read it and read it because like the suffering that I'd seen with people I'd been raised with, this was suffering so insurmountably larger than what I was dealing with. And to read of people who had, who had transcended that. I had an email too from a friend in Zimbabwe after my son died who said, we mourn with you. The first one is the hardest. And that was a good reminder too. Hmm
0: you know victor frankl one of his lines and i i'm not going to get it exactly right but you i'm reminded of it now uh, listening to you talk about this is the only thing we have is our response that's all we have Oh, i know and you weep you know you realized i i, I i've said this
1: and it's been 14 months um since my son died and it has been the labor of my lifetime. I mean, this book was part of that labor. This book was part of a template. How do you do this? How do you do grief? How do you do insurmountable grief? You do it with joy. Grief is movement. We are born to grieve. We. It's okay. In general, we can do it. When there's, you know, the Holocaust, how do you keep up? When there's that level um, and... What struck me was the same thing came out of the mouth of a Lakota elder on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. That the Lakota Sioux had been killed at such a rapid rate, continued to die so fast that the appropriate rituals aren't observed, that there isn't grief observed, and that there's a danger then of becoming stuck in grief because you don't have time Mm. to deal with all the grief. It's just you're overwhelmed by trauma. And I do think that that is, you know, essentially a miniature and survivable and, and sort of homeopathic dose, what I had growing up. Also on, by the way, the oppressor's side. I mean, I have this funny, um, I'm the funny side of the coin to be mm-hmm. writing, honestly.
0: Yeah. Well, Alexandra, uh, you know, I I feel um, sad and frustrated uh, that we need to end uh, the conversation So, I want to thank you for the conversation that we've had and your willingness to share with us so many painful and intimate stories. And we've been talking with Alexandra Fuller, the author of the sublime Travel Light, Move Fast. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.